0: sounds like it could be a script for a a Netflix show, doesn't it? I realized that that was a a very long piece of scripture that we read. If you're uh, a regular part of our church, our scripture readings are not usually that long, but I wanted you to read and hear the whole of chapter 11 of Daniel Um, because my plan today is not to go verse by verse through what we just read because I don't think it would serve as well in the format of a sermon. Um, in fact, I couldn't do it in, in one sermon, but instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize chunks of it. And then if you like, you can go into deeper study on your own, uh, which I always highly encourage. Sermons should be kind of like a taster for you to make you think, "Ah, oh, that's interesting. I mean, maybe I'll, I'll check this out on my own. Um, but if you, are just, if you are joining us this week, we have been in a sermon series on the book of Daniel in the Bible. It's one of the Old Testament books Um, And we're almost at the end. We've got one more week to go. Next week will be our final week on on the book of Daniel. That that means it's been a 14-week sermon series. Um, And I'm not going to lie. I feel like this has been the most challenging sermon series I've done to date. This has involved a lot of study and a lot of trying to pass just difficult things out. When we look at chapter 11 here, what we find is yet again the incredible prophetic power and accuracy of the Bible on display. Because what we just read there was a very detailed prediction of events that were to take place hundreds of years after that prediction and actually one that is still yet to take place. Now Daniel, he's writing all this in the 6th century BC. But he's writing about events that will take place in the 2nd and the 3rd century BC as well as one yet to come. And here's the funny thing, so uncannily accurate is what Daniel writes that it's led to a whole stream of scholarship, of Bible scholars saying, yeah, you know what, there's no way that could have happened. And so they think, you know what, Daniel wasn't really written in the B- 6th century BC by Daniel. It was written probably in maybe the 2nd century by somebody claiming to be Daniel and pretending that these were prophecies. Because they, they think it would be impossible... For any human being to be able to so accurately predict future events. Well, who mentioned anything about this coming from a human being? Daniel is getting this vision and this revelation from God. And so when we realize that it was inspired by God, then there's no conflict in believing that this was a supernatural revelation by by God. So I'm just going to try and summarize things for you here. Um, And I would say that you can break up chapter 11 into three phases, okay? Uh, The first phase is verses 5 to 20. And this covers the conflicts of what we read are called the northern and the southern kingdoms. And the period of history here would be about 322 BC to about 175 BC. Some of today's message is going to sound like A bit of a history lesson. So if you love history, you'll really enjoy this. If you don't, I apologize. But we got to get through this, and it's in God's word for a reason. So we've got northern and southern kingdoms. And the northern kingdom was basically the Seleucid Empire, which was basically the area of Syria and Babylonia, modern-day Syria. And the southern kingdom was the uh, Ptolemaic Empire, which was basically modern-day Egypt. So you've got these two kingdoms going at one another. Now, why were they called the Northern and Southern Kingdoms? Well, because in Bible prophecy, the land of Israel is considered ground zero from which all other directions go. Okay, so if you look at a map of the Middle East, what you will see is that basically Syria is to the north of Israel and Egypt is to the south. And from an Israelite perspective, remember that's what's being written from here, the conflicts of these dynasties was the most significant event in world history during the third and second centuries BC. And what we get here in verses 5 to 20 are the highlights of the back and forth and the conflicts between these two kingdoms. And, you know, as we just read, it was an intense time of political intrigue and manoeuvring and betrayal and negotiations and wars, and neither kingdom is able to gain total victory despite arranged marriages and political agreements and family unions. And who's caught in the middle of all this? The Jews. They're sandwiched between these two nations and they're tossed back and forth. Sometimes they're occupied by the South, sometimes they're occupied by the North. And also, it it sort of reminds me of that Steeler's Wheel song that says, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. So that's what's going on in the first phase. Phase two is verses 21 to 35. And this covers the period of a Seleucid ruler, a Syrian ruler called Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. He was the eighth ruler of the Seleucid kingdom in Syria. And we're talking about years 175 to 164 BC. And uh, when we were in chapter eight, we covered quite a bit about Antiochus IV. And the kind of person he was and what he did. But in a nutshell, Antiochus IV called himself, first of all, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. So you kind of get an idea of what he's like. But, you know, do you know anybody who calls himself God manifest? Well, that was him. He, he thought he was God manifest. And he was on a mission to impose Greek culture and religion and its customs on the whole empire that he ruled. And in 167 BC, he took Jerusalem by force and he took over the Jewish temple and he issued an order that forbid the daily sacrifices and the rituals in the temple. And he set up a pagan altar to the Greek god Zeus over the altar of burnt offerings, which was just horrific. He don't do that in the temple. And on top of that, as if that wasn't bad enough, he sacrificed pigs and other unclean animals on the altar. And so he totally defiled the Jewish temple. And not only did he defile the temple, but he slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews. Um, he came back from a, a conflict with the, the Ptolemies in Egypt and he'd lost the battle. And so in a rage, he took his anger out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he slaughtered 40,000 men, women and children and took another 40,000 of them into slavery. That was just over a three day period. And Antiochus IV is considered one of the most ungodly tyrants in history and to afflict the Jewish people. But what Antiochus IV does for us is he gives us a foreshadowing of the final Antichrist that will emerge in the last days before Jesus' return. And this leads us to phase three of chapter 11, which is verses 36 to 45. And this is where the scripture hones in on the final Antichrist, the the ultimate Antiochus IV, if you like. And again, back in chapter 7 of Daniel, we talked quite a bit about the Antichrist, this final figure who's going to emerge in the last days before Jesus returns, who will be a world leader, will be a powerful leader that many will follow. But you see, just like there have been people who foreshadowed Christ, Okay, we have people like Noah and Moses and David, even Daniel. They've been foreshadows. They've shown us something about Jesus. Well, so through to our history, there will be and there have been many figures who foreshadow the Antichrist before his coming. In other words, these people like Antiochus, they give us, they give us a little taste of what he's going to be like. And what kind of characteristics will point us towards and what to expect with the final Antichrist. The interesting thing is the 20th century has presented us with many antichrist figures. right People like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Marx, Nietzsche. Right? They all had certain characteristics in common. What do they have in common? Well, they all had a, a virulent hostility to belief in God, and especially in Jesus and towards Christians. They also had a low kind of utilitarian view of human beings. In other words, they kind of saw human beings just as as things to be able to help them achieve their ambitions. And so for Hitler and Stalin and Mao, that manifested in the millions upon millions of people they collectively killed for their own political ambitions. People were seen as disposable pawns for their megalomania. If we look at somebody like Marx, it was this materialistic view of the human species and the focus on dividing and grouping us by class. And, you know, if you want to understand why so much of that is going on today... Why there seems to be an explosion of dividing us and you you belong to this category and you're part of that people group and and, and the the clash and the division and the animosity we're experiencing. Well, study Marx because you'll realize much of what we're seeing today is Marx basically rebanded or expanded. If we look at somebody like Nietzsche, it was his outright rejection of God that planted the hopelessness And the meaninglessness of atheism in many people's lives. And ironically, Nietzsche himself could not live by his own philosophy. His own philosophy drove him insane. Because he had a total mental breakdown. Leading to him being committed to a mental asylum. And then having to be cared for by his mother. And then his sister for the last 11 years of his life. He never recovered from this breakdown. And it was because his philosophy leads to insanity. But all these figures, in one way or another, they they somehow dehumanized us. They made us less than human so that our lives could not be considered sacred as image bearers of God. Do you realize that? We are all image bearers of the living God. Whether you believe in God or not, we have the image of God on us. It's what gives us our infinite worth and value, by the way. But as evil... And as against the kingdom of God, those antichrist types may have been. The disturbing thing is that the final antichrist will be far worse and far more evil than any before him. He's still yet to come. But in verse 36, we're told the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. So this person, he's going to have a God complex. Right? He's going to present himself as a godlike figure, as, a, as the savior and the answer to all of humanity's problems. And so many people are ripe for a figure like this right now. We want, we want a savior to come along. And one of the ways he will do this is through the blasphemies and things he will say against the one true God. So you can expect whoever this figure is in the future to be very hostile. true and faithful Christians. He's going to have a particular hostility to Jesus and people who follow Christ. In verse 38 and 39, they tell us that he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people And will distribute the land at a price. So he's going to be a man of war. He's going to be a man of military means. He will have great military might. And will richly reward those who ally themselves with him. So a brief period. Life's going to be really good if you are on the side of the Antichrist. And it's going to be looking like you're winning. And this is the side to be on. In verses 40 and following, they go on and they describe various military conflicts and conquests the Antichrist will have, including inv- invading the beautiful land. What's the beautiful land? Israel. But then we're told in verse 45, he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. is oh, isn't that interesting? His end, this mighty figure, will be remarkably anticlimactic. No going out with a blazer, glory, you know, guns blazing. No, he'll just come to an end and no one will help him. To paraphrase T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men, this is the way the Antichrist ends not with a bang, but a whimper. And we know that because when Christ returns, there will be zero competition. There's not going to be anybody who comes close. And although mighty and impressive in the eyes of the world, the Antichrist will look weak and pathetic compared to Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 8 said this, and then the lawless one, this is talking about the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. You know what that's telling us? It's telling us that even when evil looks like it's winning, ultimately it will be defeated by God. So that's a brief summary of Daniel 11. But the two questions we need to ask are these. Number one, why was Daniel shown this vision of future events? And then secondly, as usual, I want to ask, what does that have to do with us? Because I'm sure some of you are sitting here this morning thinking, well, this is fascinating and interesting history. But what does that have to do with us? Let me address firstly why this vision was shown to Daniel. We've got to remember the immediate context that Daniel is in. What is that? His people, the Jews, have been in exile for over 70 years in Babylon. And they've been allowed to return now to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Now it's a couple of years into that and it's all come to a grinding halt. The temple's not being rebuilt. The walls haven't been rebuilt. Everything is, you know, half done, not even half done. And they're feeling discouraged. They're like, God, is your word? Are you not faithful to your word after all, God? Is this not going to happen? And so God, by giving Daniel this vision, The immediate goal was to put the difficulties of the Jews and what they were facing to put them in perspective. It was God saying, be encouraged that you've faced difficulties and oppression and difficulties before. And you will face them in the future. But ultimately, all the plots and the schemes and the wars and the power plays of the nations cannot stop God's eternal plan. So that was the immediate context. God sent this angelic vision to Daniel to encourage him, to encourage his people. But what about us? What is God speaking to us through this chapter, us living here in the 21st century? Well, let me take you to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're going to begin at verse 24. And I just want to give you the setting here. The the Apostle Paul is debating with some Stoic and Epicurean philosophers at this place called the Areopagus. All right. What's the Areopagus? Well, it was a hill in Athens, which literally means Hill of Ares. And it was the site of a council that served as an important legal institution for the Athenian democracy. Okay. so it's almost like it's little Congress for Athens. And. The people that gathered here were the shakers and the movers in Athens, right? These were the ones who determined what was cool and what was popular. These were the ones who propagated new ideas and philosophical views on culture. And they were the ones who determined the laws and systems of the city. These guys, they they were the elites of their society and they were considered the intellectuals, the, the experts of their day. And, you know, if you'd had cable news back in those days, these would have been. The talking heads around the table, dissecting the world of politics and telling us all what to think. This is who they were. And so what does Paul do? You know, Paul never, never shy, never want to turn down a challenge. He's like, all right, I'm going to debate. and I want to share the truth of the gospel with him. You've got to mind, you know, these are all highbrow, high minded folks and they're probably rather condescending and full of themselves. But listen to what Paul does. Here in Acts 17, verse 24 to 27. He begins by saying this to him. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. You see what Paul's doing there? He begins by stating, "God made the world and everything in it." In other words, God's the boss. Not your clever ideas, not your empty, shallow philosophy, but God made the world and everything in it. He's in charge. He's the one who gives life and breath and everything else. God is the one who created all the nations of the earth. And what does it say? He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. What Paul is showing there is that all the history of the world, everything we see, is determined by God and is in his sovereign control. And what Daniel 11 shows us is that we need to see the history and world events through the lens of God's word, not the other way around. In other words, we need to have an eternal perspective rather than a temporal perspective. Too many of us are just living for the day, like this is all there is. And when you think about it, how many of us get so wrapped up in the politics of our day, for example? And there's plenty to get wrapped up in, isn't there? I know. But how many of us we get so wrapped up in that and what's going on that we lose sight of the bigger picture, which is that God is in control. He is the one who appoints times and seasons. And even when evil seems to be winning, it's not. It's just moving things forward to God's ultimate victory over sin and death. Everything's in God's control. Everything is sovereign. Do you realize that you are all here this morning because of God's sovereignty? God knew something was going to stir in your hearts this morning that would make you want to come to community congregational church on this day in 2023. It's not random. It's not coincidental. It's not by accident. And I want you to hear that you are all here by divine appointment. God said this morning, I've got something for you. And it may be something I say, it might be something you read. It might be a song that we've sung. It may just be being in his presence in the sanctuary. But I really believe that this morning. But we have to keep the big picture in mind, which means having an eternal perspective rather than a temporal one. You see, If all you have is a temporal view of life, in other words, this is all there is, then in the times that we're living in right now, if that's all you have, you will be angry, you will be depressed, you will be filled with anxiety as you look around the world at us. Because you know what? That's the reality of the world without the hope of God. Let me ask you, do you, Do you allow your thoughts to be shaped by temporary realities or eternal realities? With an eternal perspective on life and knowing that everything happening around us has an allotted time by God. And that nothing lasts forever except him. Then we can take hope in knowing that better times are ahead. And it may or may not be in this lifetime, but better times are ahead and we have to have an eternal perspective. You see, when you have that hope and that understanding of history and world events, it will transform your perspective on life. And here's the thing, when your perspective on life is changed, guess what? Your life itself is changed. When you start looking at life differently, you will live your life differently. And your life will change from despair to hope, from death to life, from anxiety to peace, from depression to joy, from meaninglessness to purpose. And here's the thing. We're talking about history today. The central figure of world history is Jesus Christ. You may not believe in him. You may love him to bits. You may be indifferent about Jesus, but wherever you are on that spectrum, we cannot deny that actually there has been no more influential figure in the history of humanity than Jesus Christ. But from God's perspective and a historical perspective, Jesus is the centre of history, right? And although it's not very politically correct these days, there's a reason why history should rightly be divided by B.C. and A.D., It's because all history since the beginning of creation has been moving towards God becoming flesh to Jesus coming and saving us. And all history since his resurrection is moving towards his return when evil will finally be conquered. That's what really matters. All Christ after Christ. See, if God's real, or rather if God is not real, And there's no plan for how history will work itself out. And all the political movings and endless conflicts and wars for power and control in the world, they're ultimately pointless. Think of everything that has gone into making the various empires of the world. Countless people who've died. The labor, the bureaucracy, the blood and the treasure. What's it all for? You know, I think about my, my home, home country of, of Great Britain and I think about the British Empire. It's the largest empire the world's ever seen. Covered a quarter of the globe. You know, the saying was that the British Empire, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Because it literally didn't. It was that spread across the world. There was always somewhere in the British Empire where the sun was up. Largest empire the world's ever seen. And now, look at Britain now. Back to little old Britain. They got a little bit of a complex, I think, about it. They still like to think they're a big nation. You know, it's like, you know, like the kind of small yappy dogs that think they're a German shepherd, you know, but you're like, they're like Scrappy-Doo from Scooby-Doo. That's kind of how I see the UK now. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Nothing lasts forever. Accept God in his kingdom. And so on the other hand, if, if God is real and he has a definite plan and course for history that involves him sending us his one and only son, that whoever might believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life, then the trajectory of history and life has meaning and purpose. And all the difficult things we go through in life, the loss, the loss of a loved one, the battling of sickness, the tragedies we face in life, guess what? Then they have purpose because we know there is a greater good that's going to come at the end of it all. If we don't have God, then guess what? You losing a son, you losing a loved one, the war in Syria or Iraq or Ukraine, whatever, that doesn't mean anything. It's all just random things that happened in history. Oh, well. But if God is real, then they have meaning and purpose. And so your lives. And that's basically what we can learn from Daniel chapter 11. It's that God is in control. He's sovereign over all history. And all history is steering us towards God's final victory. And what's important for us is that we keep an eternal perspective rather than a temporal perspective. Because if that's what we can do, It will continue to give us hope even in the midst of dark times. Let's pray.